Welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast, the Shadi Nabhan Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we completed the first ever virtual American Society of Hematology meeting. And folks, I'm going to admit, and I'm going to tell you, I loved it. I really did. I missed seeing my colleagues, my friends. I missed being able to catch up and have a nice meal and a nice dinner with uh, colleagues and friends. Absolutely. I think we all miss the social connection. But did I miss on science? I don't think so. I think the American Society of Hematology did an unbelievable job, a superb job in disseminating the science. I've listened to all the oral presentations, plenary session, everything of interest. I didn't really do much with the posters. I really wasn't sure how to do that. So I'll, I'll, I'll admit it wasn't something I was able to figure out how to navigate very well. But I thought the science dissemination was great. I enjoyed the fact I was not rushed. I was able to switch from one presentation to another. I was able to take a break and then come back and listen. So kudos to Ash. And I think the virtual platform is here to stay. So I project, I predict that subsequent meetings will actually have a, a virtual component uh, for it always and all the time. With that, I wanted really to give updates on various diseases from hematology, and I invited Dr. Rafael Fonseca, a professor at the Mayo Clinic and the interim executive director of the Cancer Center, to join me on today's podcast and to talk about advances in multiple myeloma. A lot has happened in multiple myeloma since I started my residency many moons back when really all we did was VAD and transplant and sometimes melphalan and prednisone when you really cannot do transplant. Things have changed drastically. And in 2020, in ASH 2020, this was no exception. There was a lot of excitement about multiple myeloma, a lot of things to talk about. So I've invited the guru himself, Rafael Fonseca, to talk all things multiple myeloma and what happened at the American Society of Hematology meeting and before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Fonseca, I'd like to invite you to find the podcast on all podcast outlets, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc. Rate the show, write a brief review if you can, and refer a colleague. It would really go way long in making sure that we disseminate the information to the extent possible. And for that, I'm always grateful. And without further ado, Dr. Rafael Fonseca on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, it is a pleasure to have you, my friend, Dr. Rafael Fonseca, on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. You know, Rafael, you were with me on a couple of episodes with the Outspoken Oncology right now with on Healthcare Unfiltered. Unfortunately, you're stuck with the same host. <laughs> Here's the good news. We're going to talk a little bit about myeloma and ash and update, and we're going to try to simplify this. Remember, the listeners are not myeloma experts, so don't, you know, you know what I mean? So um, a, a maybe just a little bit about you, just for uh, folks who uh, are listening to you for the first time, where you work, what you do, uh, and um, you know what got you into myeloma, and then we'll talk about uh, ASH 2020 myeloma updates. Well, first of all, thank you, Chatty, for the for the opportunity. Always a pleasure to to chat with you. And there's so much going on that you know we'll we'll talk about what happened at the recent American Society of Hematology meeting, but. 
Uh, in the audience who don't know me, Rafael Fonseca, I'm a hematologist oncologist. I uh, work at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, uh, but I am also currently the interim executive director for the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center at large for, for, you know, for the whole of the Mayo Clinic. I've been doing myeloma for over 20 years, and that's all of what I do in my clinical practice. You know, I always say my patients either have an M-spike or they're in a complete response, but that's part of, you know, of my practice is exclusively devoted to, to multiple myeloma and related conditions. And um, I have a research laboratory. And so, so that's really the core of my being. And uh, again, happy to provide an update on what happened at the Ashford. So you're, you're still doing, uh, you're still doing lab work and, and all of that. I didn't know that. So you're pretty oh. active with your lab. Oh yes, yes. I have a I have a laboratory. So it's actually a large lab. We we do a number of things. You know, we do we do research, and I have biobanking activities. And you know, I'm working in in various areas of you know drug development, biomarker. Um, you know, still working a little bit on the discovery in the genetics, although that that's been less now recently. Wonderful, wonderful. So Rafael, it was our first virtual ASH meeting. Can I just confess that I really enjoyed the fact it was virtual? I, I, I don't know how popular this will be, but I honestly enjoyed the fact that there was no pressure. I could see the presentation later on. I could take my time. You know, Chatty, I, I did as well too. There were some things that were awesome. So I was, I was like, uh, you could always make a meme out of me. I was like one, one of those guys with like three keyboards, left hand, right hand. Snap, you know, snapping pictures of the screen and then putting them out on Twitter. And by the way, I use Twitter mostly as my notebook. That's how I remember things. So uh, I put it out there, but it was phenomenal. And that way, I mean, the oral sessions, instead of being crammed, like in, you know, yeah. tourist class of, a, of, of an old style playing, you know, it's like, it was phenomenal. The one thing I didn't like was were the poster sessions. I didn't find a good way to enjoy I them. Actually, but I, I admit I did not look at any posters and I, and I have some posters and I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. I, I couldn't do the posters. And if there's no pretzels, there are no posters for me. <laughs> well, you know, I'm like a, like a, like a football coach that goes and likes to look at the high school. And that's how we think about the posters. I mean, for any of us who participate in selection of abstracts, you know, it's a bit haphazard. I mean, the true outstanding abstracts become late breaking sessions, plenary, but there's a whole range under that. And I always find really interesting golden nuggets by walking in the posters. I wish there was a way that you could just swipe right and left in a big screen. Like, you know, people doing those dating apps, I guess, that they swipe right and left. <laughs> you could do that with a poster. So you could say, I want to read more about this or not. I, you know, you have to either read the abstract or hear the presentation. And it's a oh, little bit tricky. Oh, my God. The way I'm going to actually put this episode on Twitter, I'm going to say Dr. Fonseca, you know, equates poster sessions to dating apps. I like that. <laughs> I like that. You so, know, it would be, uh, plus I, I, I hope this, this endures, right? Because I would love myself being able to, you know, sit in a, in a room. I mean, the, the convention center of the future should be like IPIC theaters where you walk in, you have a beautiful couch, you're served food and, you know, you know, sodas or drinks if you want, have two screens, your keyboards, and you are attending right there physically so that when the time comes for lunch or dinner, you just walk out to meet your friends. Uh, but, you you know, you can be there and then just be the master of those keyboards uh, being out in Twitter. But then then just have a social experience, which is really what I miss terribly. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much I think I think I've, I've resolved to the fact that science could be disseminated easily what i miss is the social gathering and getting together with friends so daddy we're gonna go into business this is what yeah. we're gonna do we're gonna we're gonna like rent we work and uh -huh. you know create this little pots with equipment 
well, they're going to be next to the convention center in Orlando. So when you're ready to to meet your, you know, your peeps, you do that. But in the meantime, you work like crazy there. So we're going to spend the next half hour talking about, or even less or even more. I mean, I, you know, it's really, I, I don't, we don't want to talk just for the sake of talking, obviously, as much as we'd love to, me and you. But we're going to talk about Ash Myeloma 2020. And um, on Twitter, we all have a lot of friends on Twitter who post, most abstracts. You've done that. Our friend uh, Vincent uh, Rajkumar posted that. Michael Thompson posted some of that. Sadus Mani posted some. So there's different, you know, every, all myeloma experts have their favorites. So we can't really cover all of them, obviously. We have limited time. So I don't know, maybe let's select your top five, you know, Rafael Ponseca top five, and we'll go through them with the focus in my opinion, Raphael should be clinical applicability. So I know there's a lot of preclinical and science and lab stuff. I want to stay away from that unless there's something earth shattering. I want to make this directed more to clinicians. Sure. No, happy to do that. Um, I don't know if it's five. Let me group it in, in, in the two top things and then the, the other two big comments that need to be made. Okay. I, to me, there were, there were two themes that stood out in this ASH meeting. And the first one, which is really uh, exemplified by the various studies that were presented is that when you start treatment for multiple myeloma, if you know nothing and if you don't know anything different, you must go for the best response possible. And, and you know, that, that should be achieved by using the best drugs you have right from the get-go with the idea that in a safe way, and I'm going to repeat that because, you know, so that people know we're, we're thoughtful in a safe way, you get a patient into the best response possible, not currently measured by the way of MRD. When we think about how we practice myeloma, when we think about the established practice, just keep in mind that what made them established was flimsy data, was just grandfathering from all practices, was you know, some legacy of how it used to be done you know, 50 years ago. But the reality is there's multiple trials that look at uh, three drugs and now four drug combinations for upfront therapy that are showing that a significant fraction of patients achieve MRD. The, the notable you know, studies here were the Fortis study uh, that looks you know, at the combination of KRD plus transplant versus KRD alone. There's a third arm that has fallen off the side because it's you know, with KCD, which is not as effective. And what they're starting to show is that if you get to the point that you have very, very deep responses, the likelihood of a relapse at five years is really low, particularly for those who are able to achieve MRD negativity. A similar study was presented by uh, Dr. Peter uh, Voorhees, who uh, uh, leads the study that's called the Griffin study. And the Griffin study is one of, one of the first of its kind, which is four drugs now for frontline therapy for myeloma. So it's daratumumab, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. So DARA-VRD. And, and, and with that, a very high level of MRD negativity as well, too. And they're, you know, they're starting to show what happens over time and updates on, on that also as it relates to the maintenance. There's a couple of other studies that, that uh, build on this, and I, I want to sort of wrap them all into a theme, and that is that there's, there's a European study, an EMN095, that looks at consolidation post-stem cell transplant, and it shows that people that get more treatment post-transplant apparently do better, which, by the way, was also shown in the fourth study. And then the, the French study that, you know, the, the termination trial, um, which really shows great outcomes. The one difference for the termination, which, which will be open for debate for a long time, they don't show a huge difference in favor of upfront transplant. You know, I, I still believe that transplant adds to that ability to induce those deep responses. 
But in short, all of these clinical trials show grow for the best response from the get-go. And, and that's, that's a, such an important message. Uh, and again, the fact that we do four cycles of treatment is just grandfather from the past. You know, why not six? Why not do four transplant and then four more? And we use semantics to put labels on things, whether it's induction or consolidation. But at the end of the day, it's all the same. It's more treatment. And uh, fortunately, again, we have a growing number of patients that can be can be put into that into that category. Now, do you want me to make a pause here and discuss that chat, or you want to go to the other ones? Yeah, let's let's discuss that a little bit, and we'll go to the other one. Okay, so the 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 second big theme, I think, the bell of the ball were the bispecific antibodies. Uh, now, for those of who are not familiar with this, so these are essentially a soluble approach to to give a medication with uh, the sign of the antibody with binding on uh, both sides to both the target cell as well as the T cells and just bringing them together. That's what I call either a matchmaker or, you know, I, exp I explain it to my patients as a double-sided Velcro. And we know that T cells are bullies. You know, you put a T cell next to the target cell with the right stimulatory environment, they're going to attack myeloma. And we fortunately saw uh, several presentations for um, agents that target not only BCMA, but also two new targets, GPRC5D, which is one, uh, the talketamab, and then sevostamab, which was FCRH5. And so these are three targets we have now in multiple myeloma, and the bispecifics are showing a high degree of activity in heavily pretreated patients. So I would say this was probably what caught the eye of most people, and, and uh, the most uh, chatter was about the bispecifics. You know, the other, other things that were presented that were interesting, um, updates on CAR T cells, but it's just so telling that the CAR T cells were not the bell of the ball. And we had data presented on CAR T2, BB2121, you know, the Lumicar studies, which, which show great activity, but they were displays. The spotlight was on the bi-specifics on the session, which, which again, I, I just think it's, it's, it's really remarkable from, you know, from what we're seeing. And the the fourth theme, the theme which I, you know, I think is obviously linked to the first one is just the preponderance of presentations and studies that are looking at MRD as really the endpoint for, for, for multiple myeloma. So, you know, I would say finish the job, which is the best therapy up front, the bispecifics, don't forget about CAR T cells and MRDs here to stay. I love how you frame this in larger themes, right? I mean, I, I love that because it just puts things into context. These are the large themes of myeloma at ASH. Let's go into specifics a little bit that are fitting into these larger themes. And, and obviously you pick and choose whichever one you want in each particular theme as we go through this for the next few minutes. So finish the job, you know, so again, let me go back to history. And this is very important. Why do we do four cycles of induction in myeloma? I don't know the, the reason for that, but I presume a lot of this had to do with the fact that when myeloma was first treated with transplant, which by the way, was a bit of an accident, uh, but when it was first treated with transplant, people realized we need to get people ready. So we need to give them something before and that led to the development of regimens like, like that. In fact, uh, Dr. Barlogi was instrumental in the development of that. But back then we only, we used to give 12 days of dexamethasone at 40 milligrams with every cycle. So no wonder by cycle number four, people were not able to get out of their cars or go up the stairs because of the steroid induced myopathy. So I, I presume, I don't know that for a fact, I should ask hard. That's why we ended up doing four cycles. And then after that, you went to transplant and then beyond transplant, there was nothing else. There was no treatment. That is a body of, of work that was done, you know, 30 years ago that led to that being the standard of care. 
And what we're learning with multiple of these trials is that you need to you need to really think about uh, getting into that point. So there were there were as I mentioned there were several studies. I think an update on the Griffin was very important. The Griffin, which is the four drug, is now being followed by two other studies that are are being explored in the combination with Dara, but now with KRD with carfilzomib and a little bit of dexamethasone. There's the master protocol that Luciano Costa has uh, presented and. In that master protocol, they have a 61% MRD negativity rate with, you know, with the, at the end to the minus six, by the way. And then similar results that Ola Langren presented with what's called the Manhattan study too, which is, you know, the four drug combination. And, and, and the one thing that is very interesting, the, I think that the, the, there's a couple of things you have to think about when you think about finishing the job. Number one, clearly associated with better outcomes long-term. And I'm going to say it for the third time, do it safely, but you can get better outcomes. But number two, as we can hope there is a future for myeloma, like there is a precedent for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Because in myeloma, you go for treatment, and if you do the transplant, or even if you don't do the transplant, most patients are placed on maintenance. But could there be a time where we use eight cycles of something like direct ARD, and then you stop, and then you don't do anything else, or whatever that next generation drug would be, maybe it's going to be a bispecific KRD combination or belantamab or a variant of belantamab plus KRD. And then we stop and we stop because we know that if you're say MRD negative after eight cycles, you, you know, you're, you're done. Well, we, we still need to do those trials and, and that's, that's kind of where we're going. Uh, but that's also the importance of, 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 of moving forward and continuing with, you know, with pressing with clinical trials that can get you to very deep responses. To me, one of the most important presentations that occurred this year was published in the New England Journal in ALL, which was a combination of, uh, you know, blenitumumab and the satimine for ALL. So a chemotherapy-free regimen, no transplant, that just had absolutely outstanding results for ALL. And I can only hope that's going to be the case for, for multiple myeloma. Now, the, the big question is whether transplant is part of that equation or not in myeloma. We always joke that we spent the first 30 years proving that transplant was effective. And now with the studies like the, the French study, the AFM 2009, which it didn't show that clear of a difference in favor of transplant, that perhaps transplant is going to be dispensable. Uh, parenthetically, I believe that transplant should be offered and pursued in most patients who are eligible until we know differently. But maybe I'm willing to be proven wrong in you know three, five, or 10 years. That's interesting. So... So right now, you know, from a finish the job perspective, do you think that transplant is still a mandatory approach in the first line? So you give, right now you give three to four induction regimens, right? right? I mean, that's really, and, and it seems like there are very similar combinations. I think we, we probably don't need to go into that, but then are there patients right now in 2020 based on ASH data and so forth, where you say, I don't think this person should undergo transplant versus the other, or is you using clinical judgment and patient choice in making that decision? Well, first of all, patient choice always overrides everything, right? If, if, there's, if, 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 if that's uh, the case, how would I make extra emphasis on moving forward with transplant or not? And obviously the extreme example, someone who has an extreme illness or you know, extreme pulmonary disease or heart failure, you don't want to put them through that. But assuming the person is, a, is an eligible candidate for transplant, uh, you would ask yourself, you know, is there, is there a person that I might feel comfortable delaying transplant? So, so there's two possibilities there. Now, um, one of them could be, 
could you think of someone who goes through such fantastic induction therapy that it would request that you do an MRD testing in the bone marrow and the MRD came back as zero or you know close to zero? An argument could be made that the, the incremental gain of the transplant might be, might be low. Now, that's not standard part of my practice. I, however, have done that with patients who are interested in doing that because, again, patient, in my mind, preference you know, by the patient overrides everything else and assuming it's a reasonable thing to do. You know, as an example, I had a patient who used to see my colleague, Keith Stewart, who recommended a transplant. He didn't like the idea and asked for a second opinion with me. And, he, and we did a bone marrow and he was very close to zero and he elected not to have the transplant. Now, for the purists in the audience, they might say, well, you have no data to say that. Yeah, but I have no ability to force someone into transplant either way, right? The patient is free to do whatever they want. So long story short, that patient got more of the same treatment that has been on maintenance several years later now in, in, in a complete response with MRD negativity. So that would be one. I think those studies are important and those are the studies that might obviate transplant into the future. The second one is I have patients that even before we measured MRD, that for whatever reason, this, you know, personal, professional, or for no reason at all might say, listen, I just don't want to go through a transplant. I have several st stories. Uh, I, can, I can think off the top of my head of, you know, several of them where they have proceeded with additional treatment and then gone into a maintenance phase that are now um, over a decade uh, going forward with you know, effective treatment for their disease without a transplant. So uh, that would be another way to you know, think about it. Now, on the other hand, I, I always try to put extra emphasis. I try to twist the arm of patients who are transplant candidates to go ahead and do that. Just because when you look at the large data sets, the, most of the long-term survivors are seen in patients who have had a transplant. So, so I, and, and it, you know, it's a easier said by the doctor, so I will tell my patients, but it's, it's a very safe and, you know, effective procedure and, and it would never routine be routine for the patients, but it's routine for the medical teams now. So if you can, you know, if you can do it, consider, you know, doing it. So I, I offer it and insist on, on it, but, you know, just to the extent that the patient is willing to do that. And if not, just find another way that fits for them. And to me, the best, you know, description from for this came from our friend Vincent Rashkumar, who said, you know, with the IFM studies that show that maybe you can just get as good results when you do it down the line, he would say, I, I really love the phrasing, you can think of many reasons why we should do transplant upfront, and perhaps it's a good idea. But if you don't, it's not the end of the world. And I, I think that's, that's essentially, you know, how my, I'm going to interpret the data after this ASH meeting. That's great. Before we move to the next theme, uh, Raphael, uh, which is the biospecifics, and you'll talk about that a little bit. Can I segue a little bit about uh, and talk about smoldering multiple myeloma? Uh, and I don't know how much data was there, but um, there's a lot of chatter about smoldering multiple myeloma, and it, it, the, the ranges are wide from folks who say, well, it's smoldering myeloma. I can't believe you would treat somebody with smoldering myeloma to folks who say, well, we're not treating them. We're just uh, looking at high-risk smoldering myeloma and treating to others who say, well, this is clinical trial question. It's not ready. I don't know. Can you in like few minutes resolve the debate on smoldering myeloma and tell us what's going on there? Sure. Well, you know, Chatty, when, when I was in training, smoldering myeloma was this condition that was a little bit more than an MGOS, but not quite myeloma. And the training was like, you know, you kind of walk into the patient room with sort of renewed optimism, tell them, oh, yeah, it's smoldering, you know, it will monitor it, but it cannot, sometimes it doesn't progress for years. 
And but we quickly realized, uh, particularly through the through the very elegant work that uh, both Kyle and the you know group in Rochester has done, that in fact there's a significant risk of progression for myeloma, for smoldering to active myeloma, and most recently culminated with this model the twenty to twenty, which looks essentially just at markers that would allow you to predict that progression from uh, smoldering myeloma to active myeloma. There's multiple other models. But it was almost like a badge of honor not to treat smoldering multiple myeloma. We, we, we used to tell ourselves, you don't want to treat too early. You don't want to treat too early. Uh, interestingly, I remember in 2002, there was a meeting at uh, the National Cancer Institute and Dr. Rich Fisher, lymphoma, was there. We were talking about myeloma and Waldenstrom's and he said, you know, you guys always talk about not treating too early, but you have to ask yourselves, are you sometimes treating too late? And that comment stuck with me. And, you know, I think about it to this day because I think he was really foreshadowing what would come that we realized that when smoldering progresses to active myeloma, it can do so in very devastating ways. We, we know that uh, the CRAF criteria, which are the, you know, the, the classic way of describing that progression to multiple myeloma include four elements. So, you know, anemia and hypercalcemia are two of them. Those are the simple ones. You can resolve those easily. But when you progress to bone disease or you progress to renal failure, that can be very, very challenging, major, major effects on your quality of life. So for that reason, there's been several studies that, you know, the Cesar study, which was a Spanish study, uh, most recently Sagar Lonial, you know, presented at the, uh, at the ASCO meeting and published that, uh, you know, the, the, the E3A06, which was LEN versus observation for smoldering myeloma patients. And what we're seeing is that for high-risk smoldering patients, it seems to be beneficial to consider treatment. Now, I think this is an area that is still quite controversial. I myself, I'm, I'm somewhat conservative in this area. I think I'm more, more aggressive, more on the innovative side when you think about like the treatment of myeloma itself. But in smoldering, I think one has to be cautious and there's opportunity to observe and track patients. And, and if in doubt, I hold back you know, as long as the, per the person has indicators that they can be safely monitored. And for me, that means a person who has advanced imaging or who has uh, not a very high free light chain that would put them at risk for renal damage, I'm a little bit more comfortable following them closely rather than starting on treatment. But having said that, so we have the Cesar study, we have the 3A06 study that show the benefit of the treatment of, of smoldering patients, you know. But so then the question is, if you're going to treat smoldering, should you go fully into treatment? Should you go from, you know, lenalidomide only, or should you go to direct ARD? So one of the studies uh, was presented, uh, you know, by the NCI group at the ASH meeting, looking at the four drugs, direct ARD for, uh, for smoldering uh, patients. And what they report is, I, I believe the numbers are correct, that uh, eight years, like 90% of the patients had not progressed to multiple myeloma. Whereas under normal circumstances, it would be about 10% per year risk of progression. So it's, it's, it's a really, really hard question right now. I, th I think this is one question where it really requires a deliberate and detailed conversation with a myeloma expert to make yeah. a decision whether you should treat or not. I would certainly not want to find that because of some of the studies now people in the community go and treat out 15% plasma cytosis with, you know, with Revlimid on someone who's unlikely to be progressing to multiple myeloma. Remember, if you guys resolve the issue of smoldering myeloma, uh, Raphael, then there will be no debates, po two podium debates where you have uh, 
you know, pro and con. So well, I'm sure we'll have... find more controversial topics. Yeah. So let's move to the second theme, which um, I gathered you're really excited about, the, the bi-specific uh, antibodies. So right. what, what's going on in that general theme? So the bi-specifics, uh, as I mentioned, there were several presentations showing um, uh, mostly phase one and phase two studies in advanced uh, relapse and refractory multiple myeloma. Uh, with the bi-specifics, we have uh, clear evidence of, of anti-myeloma activity. You know, the activity of this bi-specifics comes tagged with a usual consideration for any therapy that is called a T-cell engaging therapy. So patients can have the usual things in the way of uh, CRS and neurotoxicity. It turns out that just like for the CAR T-cells, this tends to be less than what we have seen in uh, lymphomas and leukemia. So it's, so it's, it's much better uh, tolerated. But the one thing that the bispecifics bi have, it's with uh, you know, the practicalities and the convenience of them. So, so you can think of a world where if someone needs a T-cell engaging therapy, they just call the pharmacy and the patient gets a bispecific. The, the same day or the day after, right? Which is which is currently not a possibility when one thinks about CAR T cells because of the time it takes to reprogram those T cells. So I mentioned there were there were uh, several bispecifics reported. There were two of them, teclistamab, and then there's there's a you know regenerant product of, against uh, BCMA, which again show a high degree of activity. Uh, and parenthetically, I'm going to put a comment there. In myeloma, we should not talk about BCMA therapy. We should talk about the mechanism of action and target because it gets really confusing because then people think, oh, what about the conjugated antibodies? You know, what about this or that? So I think it's just the mechanism of action. So there were bispecific antibodies against BCMA, two of them that showed, um, you know, a significant activity. But I think what really got people more interested is to know that there's two more bispecifics that target surface markers that are not BCMA. And the reason that's important, this such meeting, there was one presentation that showed um, loss of BCMA expression. This came out of a biallelic uh, deletion of BCMA so that you anticipate that's gonna happen in patients who get exposed to BCMA uh, T-cell engagers or other therapies. So the, the, the two other markers, as I mentioned, are FCRH5, uh, this is called Sevastamab. This is a study I'm actually participating in. It's, it's, uh, and we were a special place in my heart for that study. And, you know, we're, we're seeing, and so I obviously can only talk about what's presented at the meeting, but, you know, as, as was discussed in the abstract, patients with fairly advanced disease that have profound responses. And I, you know, I have, you know, two patients in my practice that are MRD at 10 to the minus six, when they had fairly, fairly advanced myeloma, something we would only aspire with a frontline therapy. So, so uh, with a convenience, I, I think this is, this is going to play out uh, to be an important option for patients. Uh, the other one that I mentioned is similarly very active is a talketumab. And this compound is also different from, uh, you know, BCMA. And uh, the, the target is called GPRC5D. I already learned it. It looks like oh. the name of a Star Wars character, right? So but oh. I finally, finally learned it. Uh, and, and, and it has similar activities, similar profile with, with, uh, uh, with regards to CRS and neurotox. Now, the one thing that is also a major advantage for the bispecifics is that they don't require bridging therapy because, you know, with the CAR T cells, one of the challenges, and we're very excited about CAR T cells, but one of the challenges is prolonged neutropenia. And when you start thinking about prolonged neutropenia, then you have to start thinking of infections like what we saw with, you know, the treatment of AML. 
So with the bispecifics, they do have myelosuppression. They can have all of those things, but you can start patients right away on treatment. So there's no need for bridging therapy. And the, and the second part is because they're antibodies, uh, they might actually have a greater uptake in the community. I don't, I don't think every private practice is going to do that, but you know, some of the larger community hospitals are probably going to be embarking on bispecific therapy. So I think the dissemination of this might be a little bit simpler than that of the CAR T cells. So let's see how things play out. But I think that, that would be the summary for the bispecifics. That's really interesting. Third team, you said CAR T and don't forget about CAR T. Yeah, you know that that every every Ash meeting, Mike Thompson, you know Mike Thompson from, of course. from Twitter from Wisconsin, he kind of compiles a list of the, the like the top abstracts by all the all the myeloma to the Yeah, he has like a sheet with all of the like red, green, like I need to talk to Mike and tell him you need to I mean, I get dizzy watching it, but he puts all the myeloma experts and he puts the abstracts that they selected, right? Right. So someone should do that for every tumor, you know, for lymphoma and AML. I'm not going to do that for lymphoma, let me tell you. I'm He's looking at you there. Too much like, work. Too much work. But it, yeah, it's, it's, it's work. No, but you know what's interesting? It kind of reflects the pulse of what people are thinking about. Yeah, and if you look at that graph, you will see that there were not that many votes for CAR T cells. And you, are you guys blind? Don't, don't you read the data? I mean, the CAR T cells uh, are, are really important. But I was one of the voters, so I'm not saying anything disparaging because I didn't choose CAR T cells as some of the top things. And the reason is that we've seen data being presented before. So, so this ASH meeting was more updates on where we are with the CAR T cells. And we're certainly hoping to have a CAR T cell approval uh, yet this year for, for myeloma patients so that we can, we can actually move forward. Um, you know, all the studies, it's really hard to compare, uh, you know, with, I would say the two leading ones, you know, we, we have with, with the CARTITUDE study uh, that was presented by Dr. Maduri and then Dr. Yi Lin presented data on, on BB2121. Again, very active. I, I think we have to change the mindset of how we think about CAR T cells. I personally don't like the discussion about PFS. I think it's going to be a little bit more like allo, either they worked or they only worked for a little bit and they really didn't work the way we would want them to work. So then you move on. Uh, obviously, if, if, you know, if a therapy like CAR T cell can add a year or two, that is fantastic. But our hope is that this type of therapies that are more involved, uh, more expensive, of course, would be that they have some more durable effects. Now, the, the one thing with, with, with CAR T cells and myeloma that is important to remember is that unlike lymphoma, where you might get a CAR T cell after you know one, two, three prior lines of therapy, most of the patients that go to CAR T cells and myeloma are like you know six, seven, eight lines of therapy. So they arrive with T cells that are totally beaten up by all the prior treatment. And one can only wonder, well, is there a possibility that perhaps earlier CAR T cells can have a, a better effect in myeloma? And the answer is possibly. There's, there was another study that is trying to address this too as well by saying, well, what about allo CAR T cells? So there was a, there was a presentation for you know, uh, universal allo CAR T cells, really uh, well tolerated and, and effective. And I don't want to say statements that compare efficacy because I think it's, it's, you know, it's pretty early on, but just as an example of how good they can be, let me just talk about CARTITUDE with a study that was presented by Dr. Maduri, which essentially a lot of patients are going into CR. And so, so I think that CAR T cells soon will be clinical tools for, for multiple myeloma. And, and just how do we incorporate them into our treatment is going to be interesting to see. Did I, did I hear you correctly? You're thinking you will still do allogeneic transplant for myeloma and CAR T is a bridge. That's 
Did you say that? No, 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 no. These are CAR T cells that are allogeneic CAR T cells. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Allogeneic so, CAR T. I think earlier, I think you were mentioning as a bridge. Like, do you think CAR T becomes more of a treatment or a bridge to subsequent therapy? Or you know? no, no, no. I, I think, I think allo is, 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 you know, in my opinion, clearly on the way out. I haven't done an allo transplant in probably over twenty years yeah. in for myeloma, and there's very reasonable, incredibly smart people that are colleagues of mine who still do that. I won't call them by name because I think they, they do a very compelling case, but I I particularly don't do that anymore. But these are universal allogeneic. So the whole idea is could they be off the shelf? You know, just take CAR right. T cells right. from right. someone right. else and get them ready for myelomatation. Right. Okay. So we've talked by specifics, we've talked CAR T, we've talked finish the job. What's your fourth theme? So MRD. MRD is, MRD is the fourth one. I think, and, I, and think that, is, that, I think I think honestly, uh, every way I turned during Ash, I was just MRD, MRD. I was MRD'd out by the end of Ash. Was, everything you was become, <laughs> you become MRD'd out of the yeah, it's, it's so true, but it's really the new measurement in how we're gonna gauge the efficacy of our treatments. And and um, I always say MRD myeloma measures two things, measure the x-axis and the y-axis. And what I mean by that, on the y-axis, we're using it to measure the, the depth of the response. And, and it takes that measurement amplitude greater than what we can do with the traditional protein markers. So, you know, it takes you down to a level with, with the best methodology, which in, in my opinion, again, is a sequencing-based methodology, is down to a 10 to the minus 6 sensitivity. The other thing that's going to be interesting to see, and there was less presented at the ASH meeting on this, is the x-axis. And the x-axis is the duration of therapy. But could we soon come to a time when you treat myeloma and you treat them in such a way that your, your y-axis or your depth of the response came to the best possible? But now on your x-axis, you have a sustained MRD negativity and you can stop therapy. And we don't have to put patients through years of maintenance therapy with Revlimid. That would be my, my ideal scenario. Hopefully a, a short x-axis, you measure MRD again, it's sustained negative, And then persons you know can go on and live their lives without having to receive any more therapy. So we saw that in multiple trials, upfront trials, uh, even you know patients with relapse uh, myeloma can achieve MRD, uh, particularly in the first set of relapses. But one of the most interesting applications is going to be in what we just talked about, you know, T cell engaging therapies. So both the bispecifics and the CAR Ts, because if with those you can get patients into MRD negativity, boy, what a compelling indicator that you're you're in the right track and i, I alluded to the to the patients i have in in, in one of the trials on the sebostomab where we're seeing that and it, you know people that are essentially you know without any evidence whatsoever of procedural disease are there any new things in terms of how you uh, measure MRD at this ASH meeting and the depth of measurements? You know, let's say five years ago, the way you were measuring MRD for myeloma, has that changed right now in 2020? Well, you know, I think there were some interesting presentations. Um, we know that you can measure it in multiple ways. The, the newcomer is going to be mass spec, although that's still being evaluated and developed. Uh, Well-established are the flow cytometry and the next generation of sequencing. You know, there's there's an approved FDA assay, the, the one made by Adaptive, the Conoseq. I think historically we know that the flow, it's comfortably at 10 to the minus 5. Now, if you're a master at flow cytometry, someone like Bruno Paiva, you know, he can take it to 10 to the minus 6 with a Euroflow. And, you know, they can, they can do that uh, pretty reliably with now you need to load enough events and you need to have the, the, the algorithms and they've been very kind in making that available to the community. 
the next generation sequencing, it just depends on how many cells you load, right? And it's, it's sort of, it, it has to be validated per the approval at 10 to the, 10 to the minus six. Although I was, I was uh, doing some math computation the other day and we routinely send about, you know, four to 5 million cells. So we're kind of 10 to the minus 6.45. That's kind of our sensitivity, you know, in, in MRD. At this meeting, they presented data on discordant examples. I think one of the most interesting ones was from a Spanish group that showed that perhaps some of the ones that are positive and are flow negative are because, you know, there might be a different flow profile from some of the early progenitor myeloma cells that remain that you wouldn't detect by flow, but you will detect by, by, by sequencing. I mean, in my mind, however you measure it, we're dancing around the idea of 10 to the minus 5, 10 to the minus 6. Of course, you're going to hear pro proclamations like, well, you know, in this clinical trial, 10 to the minus five was good enough. But, you know, in medicine, we always go for the best precision we have, right? You never say, oh, you know, my rough images on that old CAT scan were good enough. So we shouldn't say that for the, for the MRD as well. Too. Before I let you go, just for, from an MRD perspective, uh, and outside of a clinical trial, just in routine clinical care, routine clinical practice, and I also recognize that every pay, it's an individualized decision, case by case basis. But for the most part, we know MRD positivity confirms worse prognosis. I think that is indisputable. Sure. Um, and it predicts uh, relapse at some point. We we may know how soon relapse happens. We we may not. Are there any compelling data that were presented at this past Ash meeting where you can tell the general? audience that in the presence of MRD positivity, you need to either continue or initiate therapy in a patient who has no other clinical or morphologic evidence of disease? Uh, well, that's a great question. I don't, I don't think there's compelling data that I could answer that in a very specific way of answering your question. But by conjecture, I would say that there's a lot of indirect evidence that that points in that direction, and 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 the uh, I mean a couple of examples were the two studies that show that consolidation post stem cell transplant, the Forte study, and and also with you know what we're seeing with Griffin, if you give more therapy post transplant, so the goal being of course of treating more disease, the outcomes are better, and I think as we start integrating MRD into into how we react and how we provide additional therapy that will guide into how we go into the future. Can I tell you there was a specific presentation for that? I don't think so. I'm, I'm thinking about it right now, but I, I'm blanking. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, but to me, as I said in topic number one, finishing the job, the, the writing is on the wall. You have to get rid of all the cells. Now, this is particularly true for high-risk myeloma. And we do have some, some good evidence, published evidence, uh, particularly from the French group. And there is a paper that I'm going to call probably one of the seminal papers in MRD myeloma, which is uh, a Dr. Aurore Perrault. She published this in Blood in 2018. And what they did, they, they found out that if you achieve MRD negativity and you're high risk, your prognosis is better than if you're MRD positive and you're standard risk. So, so, so the outcomes are the best is standard risk MRD negative, second MRD negative high risk, third standard risk and MRD positive. And needless to say, the worst outcomes were high risk and MRD positive. That's really interesting. That's I mean, I'm I'm picturing the graphs, uh, the Kaplan Meyer as your it's a beautiful, your beautiful graph. And you you know they have another nugget there, which is like it doesn't matter. Unfortunately, this is in the supplemental data, so most people don't know this. But it doesn't matter when you get to MRD before maintenance or after a year. But if yeah. you do get to MRD, your prognosis is good. 
Yeah. And that's from a patient perspective. That's, that's huge. Absolutely. Well, look, we're hoping that uh, ASH 2021 in Atlanta, um, we will be uh, hopefully uh, seeing each other live and, and having a, a nice meal. And um, if Cigar Loniel is listening to this show, he will probably throw us a big party. It's going to be in Atlanta. But we just have to pray not to have a snowstorm. Of course. Yeah. You know, he's been known to take people, especially the, his favorite podcast participants, to nice restaurants in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Sagar, get ready. Yes, yes. We hope uh, that, that he will do that. Rafael, um, we're, uh, we're going to air this uh, before the end of uh, 2020. So, Happy New Year to uh, you, your family, and for everything that you do. And um, really, uh, hopefully, to uh, much better progress uh, in myeloma, in science, and to a much better year in 2021, my friend. Oh, we can only hope so. And good, good year to you as well, Chatty. And don't eat a lot of baklava, even though you can afford eating a lot more than I do. But yeah, just keep it light. Look, it's my most favorite tweets. I tweet about science. Nobody reads. I tweet about baklava. Everybody likes it. You, you solve human, you know, peace and uh, three likes and you put baklava and my phone can't stop ringing. So there we go. <laughs> All right. Take care. Have a good one. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, hanging in there and listening to the multiple myeloma updates from ASH 2020 with Dr. Rafael Fonseca. Please let me know how I'm doing. Send me a direct message on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can also send me an email to Shadi Nabhan, O-O at Outlook.com or cnabhan1968 at gmail.com. I will incorporate your comments and I will do my best to make sure that we are able to exceed your expectations about this podcast. Rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, refer a colleague to the podcast, and I'm always grateful for your support, for your loyalty, and for all of the feedback that I've been receiving. And before I let you go, uh, and by the way, I think ASH 2020 is going to be live. We are gonna be in Atlanta, Georgia, with colleagues and friends at the American Society of Hematology in 2021. And for those of you who are listening, who've been at Atlanta ASH a couple of years ago, there was a huge snowstorm where everything, where the city was paralyzed. So all we can ask for is no snowstorm in December, 2021 and for a live meeting. Okay, I'm gonna leave you with a quote from Mark Twain. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, It is time to pause and reflect. And until next time, take care of yourselves.